Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. And on today's episode, I'm going to talk about a couple of topical things, topical topics. Wow, it's been a long day. But actually, my husband and I are watching a show about a technology company. Maybe some of you have heard about Uber. It's called Super Pumped on Showtime. And we were watching it this week. And one of the episodes, they talked about a very massive fraud attack that they experienced back in 2016, 2017. So I'm going to talk a little bit about how it was covered in the show and the context, as well as some of the details of that attack and what it looked like from what I know from back then. And I will share with you also why I feel like I can talk about this in public, because I think as a lot of you know, I am very protective of specific company information. And if I share a type of fraud, I often will, I almost never will attach a company name to it unless it's been in the news or the media. But there are a few reasons beyond the TV show that I feel like I can talk a little more in depth about this fraud attack now, in part because it's been five years and I don't think it's replicable, but that will be one topic. Another one is there's a few listener questions I received recently that I think maybe some of you may also have that question. So I will answer it on the podcast and that should make for a very full episode. But first, if you have not listened to Tuesday's interview with Galit Zaporta and Shoshana Marini, the two authors of the brilliant book Practical Fraud Prevention by O'Reilly Publishing, I highly recommend it. Whether you also want to write a book one day or are curious if you should buy the book and what it's about or you just enjoy hearing three fraud fighters passionately talk about fraud, I highly recommend you listen. The book is currently on the top 10 list on Amazon for data modeling as well as for financial risk management. I would love to get them to number one or at least the top five, but if we were to get them to at least number one, one of those two categories, it would actually help them. They'd be able to call themselves best-selling authors. And how cool is that? for two members of our fraud community to be able to say that. If you're not planning on buying the book on Amazon, that's okay. If your company has a subscription with O'Reilly already, go through that. But if you are thinking about buying it and we're going to buy it on Amazon anyway, let's do it this week so we can pump that up. And they actually have no idea that I'm saying this. So they're probably turning bright as they hear this. They talk a lot in the book about the importance of collaboration. And this is just one way that we can also collaborate as a group. Also, my passion project is the F4 virtual retreat that's coming up on May 5th. F4 is something I created last year. It stands for Fearless Female Fraud Fighters. It's a virtual retreat for four hours on May 5th from 9 a.m. Pacific to 1 p.m. Pacific. And I made that in the morning my time because I know that's evening in the UK and EU and hope that some of our international friends can join us. This event is for female fraud fighters as well as non-binary fraud fighters. Those of us who may not be in the majority, but we are a strong part. 
in part because I only know this experience. This is a female fraud fighter, but I've uh, talked to so many and I've just seen some similar trends and through lines to our journeys. I sure wish that there was something like this that existed for me 10, 15 years ago in my career. I still get so much out of it now, as do my peers that have been in the industry for 10, 20 years, and then also some that have been in it for one or two. The event last year was such a success. There were several people that ended up getting promoted that really just became alive and, and did different projects and just felt better about themselves or spent more time as a family or just got more aligned with themselves. I think the last two years we've just been on autopilot and sometimes it's good to just take a step back and be intentional about where you're headed. Some of my guests for that event, I will be announcing speakers soon, but one of them just recently advocated for herself to be promoted and receive a pretty substantial raise and did so using data and in a specific way, sharing with her company what her value was. And so I definitely asked her to come and speak as well as a couple of women who realized over the last year that they wanted a bigger challenge than they could have at their current company. And so they made a big shift to other companies also practicing fraud prevention. I've noticed that what makes some of most of us women and non-binary people awesome fraud fighters can also hold ourselves back from doing and being more both within our company and outside of our companies and a lot of other events for women in fraud and payments may focus on the external factors that can impact us. But to me, I feel like the biggest impact we have is on those internal factors that hold ourselves back. Forced myself to be pretty open about battling with imposter syndrome and other things because I know I'm not the only one uh, and I want people to go wait, if Carice has imposter syndrome, and I think that's crazy, maybe it's crazy that I don't think that I'm qualified to speak at that conference or present in front of my company or to do this big project or whatever it is. So that is why I'm public about it, not because it's comfortable. A couple other things. It's not exclusive to merchants. I've gotten a few questions about that. My expectations are that there will be no selling, that everyone is there representing themselves, not specifically their companies. I think I mentioned it's not like any other event in payments and fraud. It'll probably be about two-thirds personal development, but not cheesy. It'll be practical and fun and just good community, and we'll break out into small groups for a while. And there were a lot of strong friendships forged in last year's virtual retreat also, which I expect to happen this year. And then about a third of it will be focused on fraud because if we have over a hundred fraud fighters in one room and payments people as well, we might as well geek out a little bit. I am not a self-help guru at all. I will never claim to know how anyone should live their lives. But this event is just to share some of what's worked for me and a few phenomenal women in fraud and just as a source of community and encouragement. And the plan is to have a membership group after this to meet and have accountability and share our wins and challenges. And, you know, I think that a lot of it honestly helps the greater ecosystem in our industry as we all learn to take chances and risks and grow more in our careers and in our lives. So if you are a female fraud fighter, please register and purchase uh, a ticket. There are scholarships available for those who are unemployed and or single parents. That is on the website. If you manage a team and you have one or more females or non-binary people on your team, find out if you can offer company reimbursement for their registration for personal development or training if that's a budget line item you have for your company. 
if you are neither, but you want to support this effort, you can purchase a ticket for sponsorship. So appreciate some of the men in this industry that have already done that. It's just, it's really affirming and I appreciate it. Okay. I'm going to stop talking about that. However, you probably want the website. It's www.chargelytics.com. I'm going to put it in the show notes so you can access it there. It also should be on my LinkedIn. I'm trying to post about it more. I really struggle with publicizing things that I've created, speaking of personal development. So if you want to share this with your friends on LinkedIn or your colleagues in your company, I greatly appreciate it. This is something that I really think is needed. And it was kind of a why not me situation. (laughs) I was waiting for everyone else to create something like this for like five years and then finally decided, okay, why don't I do it? So on that, right before I dive into um, the topics of today, I am excited as always for you to hear a little bit about today's sponsor. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Super Pumped, and then that will actually lead us to talking about fraud that Uber and other apps back in 2016 and 17 experienced that impacted a lot. Just a little bit of background. This is a docuseries featuring Joseph Gordon-Levitt and a few other familiar faces in the acting world. And really the focus is on the infamous tech CEO, Travis Kalanick, who led Uber from its beginning all the way until just a couple years ago when he was asked by his board to step down. If you're in the tech world and you haven't heard of Travis Kalanick, I'm not exactly quite sure where you've been. He created a lot of buzz and headlines for several years uh, on a lot of different topics. Like with shows based on true stories, you have to take it with a grain of salt. Though for what it's worth, I've talked to a couple of Uber alumni who say that it's not too far from what they experienced, especially in the early years or days. And speaking of 
female fraud fighters. That was not exactly the best environment to be a female. I mean, nor is a lot of tech companies, let's be clear. But again, I can complain about the external stuff all day long, but it's, you know, what I have control over that I want to focus on more. One specific episode, it was episode five, talks a little about fraud that they experienced specifically from China. Without giving away too much of the plot line, the context for bringing up fraud in China was that Uber had a, it's not a policy, but like an ethos of asking for forgiveness rather than permission. And one of those things that they did that around was Apple device restrictions. So in order to have an app in the app store on Apple, you had to comply with certain privacy expectations. You still do. And at the time, Uber made the conscious decision to not abide by those and go around them. And actually, for some time, it went undetected. And Apple wasn't aware that they were being able to extract a lot of device information, as well as some other pieces of the device and permissions that weren't allowed on the App Store. And when Travis Kalanick was asked to go to Apple to explain once Apple noticed what was going on. The sole reason that he gave to them in the show anyway was that they had this huge problem with fraud in China and that's why they needed more device intelligence. In the show, they showed that it wasn't really the only reason, but that was the reason that he gave them. But really, I don't know if it was the sole reason or not in real life. I just know that there were other permissions that may not have had anything to do with device intelligence. But they didn't go into too many details of how the fraud scheme worked on the show for probably probably because they didn't they weren't sure or just didn't think it was important for storytelling. But the way they portrayed it wasn't exactly accurate. So they kind of made it look like there were just drivers in China driving around with 20 or 30 cell phones in the backseat of their car and making it look like they'd done 30 rides instead of one, assuming that each one of those rides was on a stolen card and a fake account or an account takeover or something like that. But that's not really scalable. I mean, that is a fraud vector that occurred back then and probably still does with apps that really rely heavily on geolocation. It wasn't at the scale at that particular scheme was not at the scale that this Chinese fraud attack and fraud ring really impacted them and other, again, other apps at that time. Whenever there's technology and innovation, you're going to learn a lot of lessons. And I've said this many times, and I'll probably say it forever, that fraudsters are some of the best early adopters of technology, whether that's in fintech or just e-commerce or mobile apps. And so, of course, they're going to find ways to use your systems for their gain that you probably would never think of. And this was just one of those cases. I'm going to share what I know from that time and I'll explain how I know it. But here are the reasons why I feel like I can share this. And it's important for me to share this with you guys because your trust is probably the most important thing to me ever. And so I just want people to understand that I take this very seriously and thought about pretty extensively before deciding to go on the airwaves about it. But one, there were at least two presentations on this specific fraud tactic that I'm going to talk about coming from China, impacting Uber back in 2016 to 2017 timeframe that were shared at anti-fraud conferences. And actually one of them I co-spoke or co-hosted, I spoke with the current, the head of fraud at the time for Uber at one of those conferences. So it was in San Francisco in the fall of 2017. And I think it was at the Digital Identity Summit. Anyway, I don't think that's around anymore, but that was where I spoke with him at that. Also, there obviously the TV show mentioned it, mentioned that there was fraud from China. 
there's another reason. But lastly, a lot of time has passed and to my knowledge, these vulnerabilities don't exist anymore. They wouldn't work with just how much we've moved on in five years in technology. It feels like a lifetime just when you think about the type of technology that was available in 2016, 2017, and now both on the anti-fraud side as well as the fraud committing side. So both sides have benefited from technical advancements over the years pretty quickly. So basically what was happening on a massive scale was that fraudsters in China or bad actors in China were using SIM banks to emulate and fake geolocation. So that's a big convoluted way of saying, okay, here's the actual scheme. They would place massive amount of social media ads. And if somebody was Googling Uber, sometimes they would find this in the SEO was ads for um, half price Uber ticket or Uber rides. And unsuspecting users would, of course, want half price Uber. And so they would click on that and go through that prompt through these fake companies to sign up for a ride. And they would share exactly where they were and where they wanted to go and then provide payment for half of what the estimated cost of that ride was. Usually the payment was not on a credit card. It was like through a peer-to-peer money app or other forms. But I actually don't know as much about that. I know a little bit about that, but not enough about that piece of how the consumer paid the fraudulent company. But what I do know is if I was, I don't know, if I was in downtown Seattle on the corner of First and Seneca, I would put that address into the fake company essentially's website or apps. A couple of them I think did have apps for a while and I would then put in where I wanted to go. And then one of their emulators, one of the SIM emulators, they would have look like that phone in quotation marks was actually at First and Seneca and they would call up Uber and request that ride at that place. I would get in, I would go on the ride. Again, totally hypothetical. I never did this. And then I would get out no biggie. This fake company would pay for that ride directly to Uber on a stolen credit card. So it was a form of triangulation, but really just focused around the fact that they were able to fake geolocation so well. And so Uber's reasoning for taking on more device intelligence was to say, now we can know more about this phone. Has it been around a while. What's the language on the phone, right? Is it in Chinese and this person is in the U.S.? Have they ever made orders before? Just all of that information that they could get extra going around the privacy rules at the time for the app store. It looked like in the TV show that a lot of this was happening in China, but my understanding is it was the fraud was occurring in China, but it was targeting the U.S. and EU markets, specifically U.S. They actually found through working with law enforcement and doing some pretty significant investigations, they actually found warehouses in China just full of SIM banks and mobile emulators. I'm actually looking at a slide from the presentation I did with the head of fraud at the time for Uber, where it shows some of these pictures, not specifically of the warehouse, but of the technology that was used for it. And it's just pretty crazy how innovative they were. And that just fraudsters are always going to be innovating. That's one reason why we have a love-hate relationship with them, I think. This specific scheme was responsible for millions of dollars. I Over the tens of millions of dollars. It was probably in the, what is that, 10 digit? I don't know. It was a lot of money. And that's why it was such a big deal. And I really appreciated that Uber shared this at the two conferences that they did, because I know it helped a lot of other companies who were just entering app sales or who were in similar positions understand what was possible. 
I think it helped a lot of other companies not have to learn that lesson as painfully as Uber did. And I also know that Uber is not the only rideshare company that had this fraud problem as well, but they're the ones that this TV show is on. They're the ones that we're talking about. Honestly, anything with geolocation, including food delivery, all of that had these types of schemes targeting them. And there still definitely are emulators and there are emulators that are faking geolocation. I just think that with the technology, the anti-fraud technology out there right now, that is something that we don't have to worry about as much. That doesn't mean it's not possible, but there's a lot that it's come a long way. I thought that it would be fun for you guys to hear that other side. And while their access to Apple device information was helpful in identifying and reducing this kind of fraud, it didn't eradicate it as was implied in the TV show. So anyway, it's not like the Tinder Swindler or Inventing Anna where this was totally about fraud, but because they mentioned it and it was quite a big point in this episode. I thought that it would be of interest to cover and just talk a little bit more about what that looked like behind the scenes and just how creative fraudsters are and how much fraud can impact businesses. It's not always talked about as the main reason why companies pull out of certain geographies or why they have to change a business model or why they have to tell their shareholders about significant losses, but it does happen. Oftentimes we don't know about it until a company is public and they have to make those kinds of disclosures. And even then they can often try to bury it a little bit in annual and quarterly reports, but it definitely can make a huge impact. And when companies are focused on growth, specifically like rocket ship growth for tech companies, Sometimes, and this, I'm not saying this was necessarily the case in Uber's defense, but a lot of times companies that are so focused, hyper-focused on growth, they don't want to focus on fraud very much. They don't want to hinder growth. And I've talked about that before, just as far as what I think is broken by the VC valuation systems and how they're calculated on number of users. But when we have 30 to 60% of accounts on big technology companies being fake and fraudulent and synthetic, that's not going to be accurate. And it's not going to incentivize cleaning up databases and fighting fraud as much. I know of one specific company keeps coming to mind that has just continually had a put their fingers in their ears and close their eyes approach to online fraud. And I just recently saw them on a list for like massive growth and how many numbers of accounts they have. And unfortunately, that company has had a ton of turnover in their fraud and trust and safety department because many people have tried to get this under control, but it's not something that the company wants to deal with. And until there is a appropriate size stick, so to speak, you know, in parenting, they say you can either parent using the carrot or the stick, the good incentive or the bad incentive, the the punishment, so to speak. I don't see that changing anytime soon, but it does make it very challenging for fighting fraud when a startup especially can just say, you know what, we'll just ask our investors for a bigger check next time. And we would much rather have losses in chargebacks and in other pieces than have it impact our growth at all. And that is frustrating to say the least, but out of my control. But I'm sure I am preaching to the converted in some ways of people being like, oh yeah, I've worked for those kinds of companies. And so you just, as a fraud fighter, have to make a decision, right? If the experience and if the team and all that is worth continuing, or if you just feel like your efforts are wasted or not appreciated and you need to move on. 
But that was just a crazy tangent that I didn't mean to go on. But life and fraud fighting on the front lines in new tech is definitely interesting and something that I think that all fraud fighters who are starting out in their journey should do at least a couple years stint in the tech startup because there's literally nothing like it. And I think there's a that's a good thing that there's nothing like it. But I don't know if I've ever learned as much as I did when I ran a fraud and payments department for a tech startup. There's just you wear so many hats and see so many things. And especially if you're working on an innovative business model. You're going to see all kinds of creative fraud tactics and those just keep you on your toes and allow for some creativity. Although this is not a specific Ask Carice Anything episode, there were a couple of questions that I thought I could answer pretty quickly that I often figure if one or two people have asked this question, there probably are others that would find the answers interesting. The first question is actually more about the podcast than fraud, but I appreciated it and it was something I hadn't thought of before. So they asked, I've heard you mention that fraudology has grown a lot lately. Do you think this is because fraudsters have found it? My short answer is no, I actually don't think so. Now that's to say this is a public forum. I am very aware of that. There are certain things that I will not ever say on this podcast or anywhere publicly because the advantages that we do have on the anti-fraud side are few and far between. If there are some pretty big things that I know are not out there in the fraud world, I won't share them. I was just talking with Galit and Shoshana about that the other day on the podcast because they had to consider this too when writing a book. Is it worse? Do the ends justify the means essentially, right? What's the alternative? We just don't share information in fraud. Also, we have to be aware that fraudsters have more information about your companies than you do in some cases, especially if we're talking about refund fraud. They know your policies inside and out on the customer service side, probably more than most people within your company, but just in general. So there are some things I will never share, but I do know that there have been some anti-fraud creators, whether it's podcasters or YouTubers or whatever, who have shared links to their content in fraud forums. That is not something I subscribe to. I don't need to advertise it's there to that population. And actually, when looking at the data, my podcast producer and I can point almost directly to a few things that we've done consciously to grow the podcast, as well as my participation at MRC. There were over a thousand people there, and that was great publicity for fraudology. Also, a lot of you that were there at MRC told your friends about fraudology, which I appreciated greatly, sometimes right in front of me, which was slightly awkward, but I appreciate it. So because we can draw kind of direct lines to these bumps in listenership, I don't think that is because fraudsters have necessarily found it. I think that would mean I would see a much bigger bump in the data and it would be unexplained reasons. Also, I've been getting a lot more correspondence from listeners lately. And so that shows that they really, I can see who they're, they are because they're writing to me on LinkedIn and they're all in the anti-fraud world. So that's not to say there might be one or two, but I certainly don't think that there are hundreds or thousands to make up for all the download numbers. Another question, what goes into the calculation of the multiplier in the Lexus Nexus true cost of fraud survey. So I have an email out to them to ask for actual specifics, especially for the person who asked this because they're in a very niche area that may not have been included or thought of in this survey. And so they may have a little bit different multiplier than what is the general amount. But I've been using this term and I've talked about it several times, I think lately, I've been using the LexisNexis True Cost of Fraud survey result annually because I think it helps 
my clients, especially those who don't specialize in fraud, right? If it's the leadership bringing me in or the senior leadership or maybe the operations or the CFO are bringing me in to help with chargebacks or other losses, they may not understand this as much. But when I can say for every $1 in fraud that you don't prevent, it's going to cost your company $3.00. 60 cents this year. Oh my gosh, I just completely forgot, but it's around $3.50. And generally I know what makes up this amount. So one is obviously the cost of transaction as well as the cost of goods, which is going to vary greatly for business model. So I believe that there is a average. It's going to really depend on if it's retail and there's a physical good or it's digital and there's a digital product is a gift card that has the same dollar amount as if they spent that gift card, then you really are out. If it's a $100 gift card that was spent and you get a $100 chargeback, you're now out $200 just on that, on that alone. And then you add in all the other things. So there's the transaction fees that you paid at the beginning when the sale was made. There are chargeback fees if you're getting a chargeback. There are operational costs for reviewing fraud. There's your technology costs for you reviewing fraud. I know all of those factors are going into this number and I have, I know that they have shared a little more detail on this over the years and that's why I feel confident in using it. But for whatever reason in this year's survey results, they didn't exactly explain what goes into that number. Sorry about that. If you heard my dog Arlo in the background just a minute ago, he was sitting in the window and wanted to bark at our neighbors for whatever reason. The last question I thought I would tackle on this episode was a much longer question, but really at the root of it was, can you talk about machine learning and AI versus rules-based systems and when each type of risk evaluations are best for certain companies and certain issues? And I wrote back and I was like, I'm not exactly quite sure how I can do this without naming names. And I do my very best not to name names unless they're in the media for something or the other exception I've made is with sponsors. However, I am pretty darn picky and selective on what companies I work with as sponsors. They have to have a great customer reputation as well as industry reputation and have an innovative product that can really impact the industry. Those are the only names I feel comfortable talking about. But there are some companies that I just choose not to talk about publicly because I don't feel like they're particularly honest about their products or they have had some unscrupulous sales tactics to merchants and a lot of them are my friends. So of course, I would be a little protective there. And also some of the products just don't work very well anymore. And so the reason why I think that this would be challenging is that ML and AI especially are not created equal. There are some companies that have custom models. There are others that have one or two main models and then allow merchants to create rules on top of that to customize to their company. There are rules engines that say that they have machine learning and AI when they really don't. There are rules engines that work really well because they have supplemented it with other services that really enhance their ability. There are others that aren't. And so I think it's just way too hard to put them in categories because each company is different. What I can consider is doing an episode on what to ask 
when you're looking at ML and AI, I don't want to give everything away because obviously some of my consulting services are around providing RFIs and RFPs for merchants. But there are some things around, like specifically around machine learning and AI, you can ask to at least determine if they have it and how it works. And I think I have actually talked about that before, or at least I put it in a LinkedIn post because I know I was frustrated a few months ago about a merchant I talked to after they'd made a decision on a fraud provider and said, they said they had XYZ and they didn't at all. And I could have told them that, but they didn't hire me then. And I don't like that. I don't like the fact that I'm a bottleneck for information or that I, I wish everything was fair and true and all that, but there's just too much money on the line. And also there's a lot of subjectivity in the market. And it changes a lot. The company that was known as best in class 10 years ago is not anymore. Even the one that was considered kind of top of the line five years ago isn't the one that is considered that now. So it just changes a lot. So anyway, that's why it's hard for me to talk about specific product features because they vary so much by company. And I don't want to get into talking negatively, positively, or just anything about any one provider, especially because I know so many of you guys listen. And I do generally think that anti-fraud technology is very needed in this space and that it's important. Do I get frustrated by some companies selling practices or their lack of transparency and honesty with their customers? Yes. But I think if I were in any industry, especially in technology and in SaaS, that would be the case. So really, that's just one more reason to say, do your homework, talk to your peers, ask questions, ask a lot of questions of the company that you're talking to. Find out if you can do a POC, a proof of concept that definitely can help you understand how much they can help you. So with that, I think I'm going to wrap up now. I actually, full disclosure, I have recorded this episode two and a half times now, so I'm a little bit tired, but I had another topic I was going to discuss and just decided not to because I felt like it would, as I was reading through it and as I was talking about it, it just didn't feel right to talk about publicly on the podcast, especially as I'm talking about our fraudsters listening. So anyway, with that, I'm going to wrap up for the day, but I am going to bring you another great interview on Tuesday, and I look forward to speaking with you then. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.